I've listened to The Sky is Crying by Stevie Ray Vaughan for a year. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. we were supposed to talk about this episode that happened in one of the previous ones that we're forgetting that the audience is looking for closure on not that i know of welcome to spin it the record ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music i'm james and with me is connor then you were really like gassing up there and then you slammed on the brakes for my name i don't know how to take that (laughs) i don't know i just like to mix it up sometimes there's a real undercut should i overcut it yeah connor oh gosh (laughs) That scared me. I don't know. I You just were giving me crap about it, so I thought I'd reverse course. I genuinely jumped in my chair. Fantastic. Well, um, we're here to talk about another fantastic album of my choosing and Connor's... My what? I don't know. Well, <laughs> I, was, I didn't know where that sentence was going to go. The album that I chose and Connor's stuck with, and uh, this week I picked Stevie Ray Vaughan's The Sky Is Crying. Some real blues, not that fake blues from last week. Last week, we touched a little bit on the blues rock, right? Janis Joplin, very blues-inspired, and you didn't like it. So I thought I would... Double down? Kind of test your limits. Yeah, I'd double down and test your limits with the blues and see if, you know, you like more instrumental blues, guitar player blues, and just... I can't believe you didn't start with something a little more traditional like this and then test my limits. You kind of went in the reverse order. (laughs) You're right. Well, it just felt like Janis Joplin... Last week was meant to be Janis Joplin week. Okay, then. Don't ask why. I just, you can feel it sometimes. But for those of you who don't know, let's talk a little bit about Stevie Ray Vaughan. Stevie was born in Dallas, Texas in 1954, and he started playing guitar at age seven. He was inspired by a lot of the greats like Lonnie Mack, Albert King, Jimi Hendrix, um, Muddy Waters, the works, really. He dropped out of school and then moved to Austin, Texas to play music. And that's where he started to get really popular. And he actually ended up catching the attention of David Bowie. Maybe you heard of him? Nah. No? Oh. Well, get ready. Just kidding, just kidding. He's in my favorite movie. That's right, David Bowie is in your favorite movie. Should we leave it ambiguous or should we tell him? Everybody in the comments, guess at my favorite movie. Guess guess your favorite David Bowie movie. But, But because David Bowie, you know noticed him, took a liking to him, he ended up playing guitar on Bowie's 1983 album, Let's Dance. Did he dance? Yeah, he did. Uh, maybe. I, I don't know, but but probably. <laughs> you were really confident for that and immediately second-guessed it. <laughs> How can you not dance when you're making an album called Let's Dance? Have you heard the song Let's Dance? It invites. Have you heard the song I Don't Dance from High School Musical 2? Um, yeah, I have. A lot of there's a lot of dancing in a song called I Don't Dance. Well, you're right. I guess there could be no dancing in a song called Let's Dance, but that's not the point. After that, he moved on to a solo career and then he released his debut album, solo album, called Texas Flood in 1983, at which point he really, really started to take off. He would borrow a lot of guitar tricks from the greats that he would watch, like Hendrix. Like I said, uh, he would play the guitar behind his head, he would pick the guitar with his teeth. He was a real showman. You know, he he got all the tricks. Now, when you say pick the guitar with his teeth, do you mean hold a 
guitar pick in his mouth and pick or literally use his teeth to pluck the strings i mean literally use his teeth to pluck the strings oh gosh yeah i feel like i feel like uh i feel like i hear the cries of a thousand dentists all crying out at once (laughs) yeah it's not easy i can't imagine it'd be easy but it's impressive or at least it looks cool over the course of his life he would release three more studio albums couldn't stand the weather soul to soul and in step by 1989, and he also put out a live album. Much like some of the other artists that we've talked about, Stevie did struggle a lot with drugs and alcohol. He was drinking even before he started to play guitar at age seven. He snuck his dad's drinks when he was six. Jesus. I know. And by 21, he'd gotten into cocaine as well. So uh, kind of a lot of stuff going on there for a long, long time at that. Uh, Stevie passed away unexpectedly at age 35 in a tragic accident in 1990, He was leaving a performance in Wisconsin via helicopter because the venue that they were at, there weren't a lot of roads to leave, and it was crowded with fans and tourists and stuff, so the normal thing that people would do is leave in a helicopter to avoid the traffic and being accosted and stuff. So it was a foggy night, and visibility was really bad, and the helicopter crashed into a ski hill that was less than a mile away from where it took off. Everybody on board was DOA, including some members of Eric Clapton's touring band. And, uh, I mean, obviously really came out of nowhere. So that's a bit of a tragedy. And even though his career was cut quite short, he's obviously gone down as kind of a legendary name in the world of blues rock and guitar greats. In 1982, Vaughn became one of the first members inducted into Austin's Music Hall of Fame. He's actually the first musician to receive a public monument in Austin, and he's had several awards and scholarships set up in his name. He was posthumously inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame in 2000 and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2015. He sold over 15 million units in the United States. He's earned six Grammys, and The Sky is Crying, this album, took home a win for the Best Contemporary Blues album. Little Wing won Best Rock Instrumental Performance that same year, and Rolling Stone ranked him number seven on a list of the 100 greatest guitar players of all time. When did that list come out? The list came out in 2015, I believe. Oh, okay. That's actually really recent. Yeah. A couple other fun trivia tidbits about Stevie Ray Vaughan that I really love as a guitar player or that you might find interesting as a listener, I guess. (laughs) As not a guitar player. As not a guitar player. Yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan kind of became synonymous with the Fender Stratocaster, a really, really popular model of electric guitar. I own a few strats myself. And I love him. Uh, He picked the Strat for its strong sound and its versatility. And I think that's the thing that he kind of exemplifies on this album is a lot of the ways that you can make different sounds with the same guitar. But he was a guitar collector. You know, he got guitars at pawn shops from his famous friends like Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top. He had them custom made to give away as gifts. In the early days of his musicianship, his wife Lenora, also known as Lenny, even had to raise money from friends and family for a $300 guitar he couldn't afford because, quote, she could tell how badly he wanted it, and so he named it Lenny after her. It's cute. Name the guitar after your wife. I mean, it's the least he could do. She got it for him. If anyone buys me a guitar out there, uh, I'll name it after you. I haven't named any guitars, actually. I should I should come up with names for my guitars. Uh, oh, should name one of them the mixtaper? No. What if the mixtaper told you his real first name? Would you name the guitar after him? Yes, maybe. <laughs> I'll run it by him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, the story ends. Uh, in 2004, Lenny was auctioned off, not his wife, the guitar. The guitar was auctioned off and bought by Guitar Center for $623,500. I can't imagine 
just selling a guitar to someone for like buying it for $300 and then a couple dozen years later flipping it for 623,000. What about buying a car for like 3,000 and selling it for like half a million? Are you talking about Janis Joplin? Yeah. Yeah, whatever those numbers were. Oh, it's the same thing. I wasn't on that that game of guess that dollar amount. Darn it, I should have played the game. Oh well. He also had some really unique things that he would do as he would play the guitar, some stylistic choices. He would tune his guitar down a half step. So instead of standard tuning, everything would be tuned down one little half step. He also liked for the neck of the guitar to be asymmetrical. He wanted it to be thicker on top because it was more comfortable for his play style where he would keep his thumb over the top of the neck. So the necks of his guitar was skinny on the bottom and got fatter up the neck. He really, really, really loved the vibrato bar, a technique that we hear a lot in his playing. And he had to actually seek out custom ones because the normal ones would need to be replaced too often. So he got vibrato bars made out of steel. Another thing that he would do is he would flip his guitar picks around backwards. You know how a guitar pick is kind of shaped like a rounded triangle. He would use the thicker side of it instead of the thinner part, which would produce a warmer tone instead of the sharper sound that comes from the more narrow side of the pick. And he actually loved to play with thicker guitar strings. It really, really, really messed with his fingernails because he used thicker gauge strings. He would regularly split his nails from playing so intensely, and at one point, he even had to borrow super glue in the middle of a performance to keep his nail in decent shape so that he could keep playing. That super glue company should use that as uh, like advertisement. They're like whatever gun is used in the Jurassic World movies, like is on their website. It's certified to be used against a T Rex because it was in that movie. Are you kidding me? Oh. You know, like could you imagine? The, yeah, it's like, like it's like it like shows a bunch of animal icons for the different animals it's good for. So you know, it's like raccoon, tiger, bear, it ramps up, and then the last one is T Rex. <laughs> Find your inner gold bloom. Buy the T Rex gun. But could you imagine that the super glue company did the same thing for like things it's good for? It's like. A piece of paper, maybe it's uh, gluing a button back on, like buttons. Like just something. And then the last gluing one a is a finger. On? I don't know. How are you making your clothes? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm, I've never been known for my uh, on-the-spot hypotheticals. All right. <laughs> You're right. It's, it's actually a, a weaker, a weaker point for you. <laughs> Do you not just glue your buttons on. Are they not just decorative? No, they're not. They. I was honestly thinking like arts and crafts, so like taking buttons and putting them on things for arts oh, and crafts. Oh, I'm, okay. Clothing's more funny. It is. It's like, oh no, the button on my pants popped off. Give me the super glue. <laughs> I mean, would it not work? I don't think it would. <laughs> it might. Well, the whole point of a button is it gets tugged on. Yeah, if it's strong enough super glue, you could tug on it. Hey, audience, if any of you know about any uh, tuggable super glue. Let us know, and we've got an experiment to run. Hug a glue. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's talk about The Sky is Crying specifically. If you haven't heard it, if you want the context, you know what to do. Listen to it. And okay, so you may be wondering, you said Stevie released four studio albums, and you, you listed them off, and The Sky is Crying wasn't on that list. What gives? Well, The Sky is Crying was released posthumously, in 1991, and this collection of 10 tracks was compiled over the years from a bunch of old recordings, a bunch of outtakes that he did with his band, Double Trouble. Uh, with the exception of Empty Arms, every single track on this album was previously unreleased, which officially makes this record Vaughn's fifth and final studio album, even though it was put together by his brother. What made you pick this one over any of the ones he did when he was alive? It's a good question. I had people recommend this album to me. I figured it'd be an interesting place to start. And, I don't know, I just really like the emotion behind it being the first album 
and only album released after his death of all new material. It's interesting because even though he had passed, this was like the last Stevie Ray Vaughan album that could exist, you know? And I just think that's really cool. Well, what I will say is, even though Vaughn wasn't around to see it, the album met a lot of success. It reached number 10 on the charts, making it Vaughn's highest charting record. Uh, the one thing I will say, though, is a lot of these songs are covers. Vaughn himself only gets writing credits on two of these tracks, but I think his impact on the classics and the covers that he does on this record is really clear from the start. Like, he's really, really, really left his mark on them and made them his own, even though he doesn't necessarily get the songwriter credit. And I think what's cool about this collection, too, is that it's fairly diverse within the broader blues genre. We've got everything from blues classics to the originals to instrumentals. We've got covers of Jimi Hendrix, Elmore James, Howlin' Wolf. I really like the array, and I really like the time span because all these songs were recorded between 1984 and 1989 they really cover the entirety of his career, which is another thing that makes this collection really unique. You know, all these other albums were snapshots of him at a specific point in time. This one is career-spanning, and I think that's cool. It's almost like a Greatest Hits album, but with all new material. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly like that, which I don't know if we'll ever do another album that kind of has that distinction, but that's a lot of backstory. Now it's time to get into the games. It's time to play Factor Spin. Let's just get him out here. You clear your throat unsuspiciously. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's me, the mixtape. I'm here. Hello. Welcome back to the show. How how did you feel about Janis Joplin? I know Connor absolutely did not like that album at all, but what did you think about from like a fact standpoint as an artist? Uh, Did I win that round? I don't remember. Yeah. You, you got a win. It was my first win in forever, right? Yeah, I loved it. It was a great episode. <laughs> it was your first win in a long time. I'm excited to see what facts you've dug up on Stevie Ray Vaughan. I'm guessing a lot of them will be totally a surprise to me. Yeah, do you not know a lot about uh, about this guy? I know a good amount, but your facts tend to be things like he owned an elephant or something. Like stuff that I wouldn't know. Except for when you do know them and completely disappoint me. Uh, yeah, I'm still, I still am sorry about the Head in the Heart episode. Let's just jump into my first one, shall we? We shall. He once did a whole concert dressed as Hulk Hogan. Okay, all right. When did this happen? Uh, in 1984. Oh, early on. Yes. What point in Hulk Hogan's career was, was he at? Like, is this the pinnacle? I'm not too, too familiar with WWE and Hulk Hogan's career, but is this like peak Hulk Hogan years? I think thought you might ask this uh and so i went and did the research ahead of time for once oh look at you hulk hogan signed with them in 1983 and started his wrestling career in 1979 oh okay so he had just made it to the big leagues yes i would guess as a newcomer he was probably pretty popular so what on earth inspired or required stevie to dress up uh nothing required him to it was just a halloween party at the austin rehearsal complex in austin texas okay does hulk hogan have any ties to austin himself not that i'm aware of oh just a fun halloween costume yeah it was it, uh, he decided last minute to perform in costume and he got the costume from none other than randy hansen uh randy hansen okay uh randy hansen's best known for his rock tribute act honoring jimmy Hendrix. Okay, yeah, that makes sense why you'd hang out with Stevie Ray Vaughan then. So, so Stevie didn't have any particular affinity for the costume or for... No, I think, I don't even really, I don't even have any information on how Randy Hansen had it, just that... <laughs> just that he did. Okay, um, how long was this whole concert? I guess, was it crowded at the venue? Like, what was the deal? Oh, uh, yeah, it was, it was a concert that had, you know, 
a bunch of different people performing at it, and so he just did, I don't know, probably a small set. Right. I'm going to go ahead and say, for some reason, that this is true. This is true. You're going with fact. Yeah, I don't know why, but I guess I'm going to lock in fact. Uh, you've, you've done a good job in tying it to actual musicians. You've done a good job in tying it to, I mean, Halloween Party makes sense. You got the timing right on the Hulk Hogan thing. So, I don't know. Everything just kind of lines up a little too well to, for me to think it's a spin. I don't know. I'm locking in fact. You're right. Everything does line up a little too well because this is a spin. Ah, oh, man. <laughs> uh, so basically, he, there was a Halloween party at the Austin Rehearsal Complex. He did perform. He actually dressed up as Jimi Hendrix, fun fact. Oh, you just... <laughs> Hence why he got the costume from Randy Hansen. <laughs> oh, you just changed the costume. <laughs> I just changed the costume to another 80s culture icon and <laughs> i went with hulk hogan nice impressive i gotta give it to you on that one and that's the only reason i knew when hulk hogan joined the wwf was because i needed to make sure it wasn't after the event <laughs> in case you somehow knew that all right that was tricky that was a sneaky one my next one also something you probably didn't know he considered calling himself stingray oh so obviously this doesn't predate the police right and sting probably i assume i feel like you get confused if you had sting and sting ray at the same time but so he was going to replace stevie with sting why does he like stingrays or anything just a cool name well reports say it was because of the stingray guitar he had before he became known for playing strats oh interesting tell me more that's about all i got for you okay he had a guitar that had the word Stingray bedazzled on it. and Bedazzled? I assume Stingray I, I looks bedazzled in the picture I have, supposedly. Allegedly. And I assume Stingray's a type of guitar, like the Strat is. I don't know. I don't know anything about guitars. Okay. Uh, Stingray would be a cool name. I think I'm going to say this one is a fact. Oh, this one also lines up too good to be a spin? Well, I just, you think about when you're young and starting out in the music business, you know, you kind of maybe go, I want to have a cool name. I want a, a pseudonym or a band name. And you think of stuff and sometimes it's not good, right? But you think it's good in the moment. And I don't know. A, a guitar called Stingray is a cool enough reason. If your middle name is Ray, I think I'm going to say it's a fact. This is a fact. Woo! And if you check Discord, you'll see the fake picture I was talking about. Oh, yeah, that's very bedazzled. Look at him. He looks like the coolest dude. Yeah, it's the only photo I could find, you know, so I couldn't like, you know, I couldn't validate it anywhere else. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, captioned as Sting Ray, Stevie Ray Vaughan, 1979, with pre-1961 360 fire glow. Yeah, the guitar, you'll probably see this picture on our socials. The guitar has a really wide body, and it's got wings at the end of it, making it look like a stingray. The neck that would come up from the body of the guitar looks like the stinger. Very cool. We'll definitely put it on our socials. All right, one for one so far. Well, one and one. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, one and one. I'm one for two. You're trying to take <laughs> points away from yourself. <laughs> Maybe this is why I'm losing. I need the math department to step in and make sure we've been tallying this right. I think so. My next one for you is that he was in a three-minute-long commercial. For uh, bubble yum, <laughs> bubble gum? Uh, if only. Three minutes is a long commercial. Uh, what for? A New Zealand oil company. Uh, okay. What year did this happen? 1988. Okay. 1988, sure. Does he have any ties to New Zealand? Uh, does New Zealand have any ties to him? Hard to tell. Is it? I couldn't. I didn't find anything. Okay. So what's the oil company advertising in this commercial? Are they just trying to sell more oil? I think so. Just trying to sell more fuel. It was, specifically, the company was Europa Fuel. Your, Europa. 
is selling fuel in New Zealand by having Stevie Ray Vaughan <laughs> run three-minute ads? This is just what I'm telling you. Believe it or not. He says, I don't make the facts, but he literally does. <laughs> Wild. So what's he do in the commercial? Well, the commercial appears to be like a cheesy late 80s music video for a song called traveling on but it ends up being the europa fuel commercial as you go through it oh okay i see like one of those things that like marathon would do where they're like look at this road trip and then they stop and get marathon gas every two minutes you're like whoa yeah that's exactly what it is pretty much drive around new zealand and eventually stop off near a dc3 airplane parked in a small town and get gas very interesting uh, how much did he get paid for this i have no idea they even after they do that though they walk into a bar and join stevie on stage where they continue singing and dancing for the rest so, of the so song. it's a subtle little it's a sneaky product placement he can even be seen riding in a tank at one point in it in a tank <laughs> yeah but why new zealand there's i mean new zealand is an island it's you can't like road trip much there's a lot of cool sights to see but i'm guessing they're not a kind of place that's like huge on gas use yeah i have no idea this is baffling i'm gonna have to say it's a fact and you're with fact again you don't think i made this up if it's a spin my most likely guess is that this is just about someone else and you just transplanted Stevie in there. Well, you don't think I'm creative enough to create this drug trip of a of a fact? <laughs> you could have. I just, uh, I don't know. It just seems like a fact that could be someone else's. It's not somebody else's. It's his. It's a fact. Ooh, all right. There's a video. To, there's a link to the video. I want to see him in a tank. <laughs> this is already wild. <laughs> I know. I can't believe it. See, there's the Europa in the background. <laughs> they stopped that. Yep. This <laughs> guy hit by an airplane. <laughs> Stuff's exploding. Oh, man, it's a whole ordeal. There's the tank. Wait, that was the stingray. It was. I'm intrigued. But yeah, that continues on for another like two minutes. Wow. <laughs> it's uh, unbelievable some of the things that you learn when you start digging into facts for the show. I got one more for you. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm ready for one more wild one. Uh, he was once kidnapped after a gig. Kidnapped? <laughs> I love how the facts usually just slowly escalate. It's it's wonderful. So he's been kidnapped intentionally. Did someone target Stevie Ray Vaughan? Oh, uh, well, that's up for debate. Okay, what's the debate? Who was behind it and whether or not it was intentional. Oh, it's up for debate who was behind it. Nobody knows who did it? Uh, uh Yeah, it's not a lot of details about this one. Okay, so <laughs> he walks out of the venue. The people that are intending apparently to kidnap him go, oh, there's uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan or <laughs> someone we could kidnap. They, what next? Like put a sack over his head? Uh, well, they kind of, they kind of, they kind of candy vanned him. They were like, uh... check out his Stratocaster. We got a guitar back here. <laughs> hey, buddy. Noticed your nail is pretty rough. We got some super glue. <laughs> we got some super glue. the good glue. stuff. The kind you can glue a button on with. <laughs> oh, sign me up. Oh, God. I've lost all train of thought. Obviously, they didn't do that. What was what they lure him with? They uh, told him that there was a party going on at, some, at their apartments and invited him to go. And he was like, yeah, sure. I like the party. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. Why not? Let's go. So, yeah, he went to an apartment with a couple strangers and they decided to kidnap him. They actually went to their apartment then. Well, they went to an apartment in Manhattan. I don't know if it was theirs. Well, sure. And then they decided to kidnap him. <laughs> At some point, I guess, yeah. I don't know if that was their intent from the beginning or not, but... What'd they do? Start to, like, take him to somewhere else? Well, they held him for ransom. Oh, uh, what What was their demand? Uh, that his manager turn over his contract in exchange for his release. They, okay, listen, 
We just kidnapped <laughs> you. We want to be your manager. You have him give us the contract, and then we'll take over. We'll let you change your name to Stingray. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a weird demand. Obviously, the manager did not acquiesce. No, and, and yeah, he absolutely didn't. Instead, he hired his own goons to go search them out. Oh, they re-kidnapped him. It's like stealing from the thief, you know? It's like, is it really stealing? Well, okay, but the, the problem with that analogy is that if I steal from a thief, I'm taking my thing back. Like, Stevie Ray Vaughan is a person. He's your person. No, he's not. <laughs> okay, so what did he do to get free? I, I, don't, I don't know. The Mysteriously, they found Stevie two days later. Wow, that two days. Okay, I'm going to say this one's a spin. Well, first off, I got one more piece of information for you. Oh, oh okay. You mentioned, I mentioned that it was unsure whether or not it was on purpose or intentional. Yeah. That's because it was such a strange incident that... People close to to Stevie kind of thought that maybe his manager arranged the whole thing to discourage him from seeking out other managers. <laughs> what? You think his manager arranged a kidnapping where, I guess, uh, yeah, it is weird that they demanded his contract. His contract, yeah. And the manager said, no, I'll save you. <laughs> That's, that is a little bizarre and suspicious. Others argued it was authentic, you know, but uh, so that's why I said it's kind of up in the air on whether or not. I'm going to have to say this is a spin. You're going with spin. What makes you think it's a spin? Well, I already got two right, so the worst I could do is split it 50-50, and I'm feeling spicy. I feel like, I mean, maybe this could be a fact, but I don't know. You said there's very little information on it. If someone kidnaps a, a music star after a gig, you know, while they're touring or playing and I, like that would be a big deal. You you surely find something about that for two, for days even. They held him for a couple days. I mean, the manager had a SWAT team go in after him. I'm I'm gonna say it's probably a spin, and I think if it was true, you'd have more information. This is a spin. Ha <laughs> ha! Yes, I caught that one. You did indeed. What is there anything true about it? No, he was never kidnapped. Oh well, good. Thank goodness. At least never kidnapped that I'm aware of. Let's put it that way. I was teetering on the edge. That was a good round of factor spin. I liked a lot of those facts. It wasn't as good as last week. Not for you. <clears throat> That's it. It's officially in uh, the mixtaper likes Janis Joplin better than Stevie Ray. It's official. That's the mixtaper's opinion. Now we get to find out James and Connor's opinion. So we will catch you next week, mixtaper, for an episode I am stoked about. Do I know which one next week is? I don't know. I don't know. Yes, we'll find out between, hopefully before next week so I have time to put together fact and spin. Hope you will. See you next week. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the album cover of The Sky is Crying. It's a simple one. It is. The cover features... The man himself leaning up against a car. You know, it's just a picture of him. And it says, Stevie Ray Vaughan, the sky is crying in a very 1991 font. Would have been cooler if it was a tank. It would have been cooler if it was a tank, objectively. At least we know he got to drive one. Or at least ride in one for a while. I don't have much to say about the album cover, to be honest. What's going on up on the, like, right? And why did they choose to use such a, a colored and font style that... They had to put a black background on the words rather than it just sit on the white. I think it's a cool stylistic choice. I don't know. Fair enough. Yeah. It just looks like something like a third grader made in Photoshop class, <laughs> you know? It kind of does. Yeah. And, and everything looks like it's been torn up, right? That picture looks like it's been torn out of something and, and put there. Either way, it's interesting, that's for sure. It is. This whole album is interesting. There's a lot going on here. I guess we should get into it. Up first is Boot Hill. Boot Hill indeed. It's another 12-bar blues track. Uh, if you recall, we've talked about 12-bar blues on Joan Jett, Hank Williams, and a couple other places. The 12-bar blues, it goes 
to remind you, is from a one chord to a four chord to a one to a five four one. So that happens all over the place. It gets used all the time. Uh, you, you get used to that. That's the thing we're going to be saying a lot on this record. It's the twelve bar blues because uh, this is a very bluesy record. It's got a lot of cool guitar fills and a lot of licks and riffs and excellent guitar playing. Excuse me. What are we licking the guitars in this album? Well, that's a, that's that's what it's called a a lick. It's like a run of notes that you play. Why not just call it a run of notes? Why not call it a lick? Because it's way cooler. And he did, you know, he did pick with his teeth. I bet yeah. he got a lick in once or twice. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, he he's definitely grounded in a lot of like root blues traditions, like the twelve bar style, uh, and a lot of other just similar dominant sevenths and really like standard blues things that you'll hear throughout the record. One thing is I started up Boot Hill and I just, man, when he talks about loving Stratocasters for the strength of their sound, I can really, really hear it right off the bat. Like that's a a strong, powerful sound. The fuzz, the really mellow ringy tone, it just belts out every note that he plays. And I really love that. Yeah, it starts off very strong. Like I said, the music kind of smacks you in the face right from the minute you hit play. It really does. And he sings so well. You know, he's got the most bluesy voice. It's, it's very, like, deep and raspy. Like, he he can get a growl in, which is super important for this style. As far as the song itself goes, we don't know who wrote it. Oh. It's kind of a mystery. Yeah, but it is a simple song about a guy who murders his lover. Done a lot of those recently, too. <laughs> I guess we have, haven't we? Uh, the song is so short, right? There's only three main verses. There's no chorus to this song, right? As a 12-bar blues song, it's just a verse-verse-verse structure. And he does this uh, really traditional lyrical thing where he repeats the line twice, right? Look up on the wall, baby, hand me my shooting iron. And then he repeats it and says, call your mother long distance. Tell her to expect your body home. Doesn't repeat that one. No, he doesn't repeat that one. But the the first line of each verse is always repeated. And then the last line where they resolve the, I guess it's technically a couplet, even though there are three phrases. One of them's just the same. But the, the last line is where it always resolves. If the city don't bury you, baby, Lord knows the county will. You've made your last mistake. You're going way out on Boot Hill, which is right like a common name for a cemetery in ye old 1990s. I'm just kidding. It was before that. You know, very instrumental, not as instrumental as some of the other ones, but still very instrumental. And, you know, I like me some instrumentals. Yeah, I was. That's the other thing I think that might give this a leg up over Janice it is the just consistent quality of the guitar playing. The, the, just, yeah, the quality of the songs. <laughs> the better songs are really going to shine more than the not quality song. Ah, oh, yes. Astute observation. Well, I just mean Big Brother and the Holding Company like to jam. But they couldn't jam like Stevie Ray Vaughan. They like to try to jam. I don't know if they ever successfully did. Fair. Roadblock gets a little jammy. I don't know. There's a couple others where they go on a good run, but you're right. They sure do try. Way to try. Uh, But Stevie succeeds, I think, on songs like Boot Hill. And then the next track, too, uh, The Sky is Crying. I think he does a really good job with that one as well. One thing I noticed, I know it's not related to the guitar, but I really like the drums on The Sky is Crying. There's a, it, he does a great job with that cymbal, and you could just hear this organ playing softly in the background, which gives it just the perfect amount of backdrop for him to come in and just rip all over. Now, The Sky is Crying is not one of his original ones, right? This is a cover? I feel like I know of other songs with the same name. I guess they don't have to be the same song. Like, I'm fairly certain, doesn't Eric Clapton have a song called The Sky is Crying? Eric Clapton has a lot of songs called a lot of things. And a lot of them are a lot of them are covers. <laughs> yeah, the sky is crying is is a cover of an Elmore James song, 
It's by Elmore James, Morris Levy, and Clarence Lewis. Gotcha. And uh, I think it's a very captivating album title, especially given the circumstances of his death. Uh, I think it's a really good song. It, this one's a slower variant of the 12-bar blues style, uh, so it's a, a little better disguised, maybe. But I'm sure you can hear some of the similarities between this and Boot Hill, especially with the lyrical structure, where they do the exact same thing that they did before, where they say a line and then repeat it to finish out. But this time they say two lines and then repeat it. Yeah, yeah, I saw my baby early one morning. She was walking on down the street. I saw my baby early this morning. She was walking on down the street. You know it hurt me. Hurt me so bad. Made my poor heart skip a beat. So I guess the sentiment of it throughout the record is just so bluesy, right? The idea behind the blues is that you sing about sad things to maybe take that burden off yourself and make you feel better about it. I think the blues is a great vehicle to like solicit empathy. And I think these songs do that really well by keeping the lyrics on the simpler side. Uh, just basic expressing what's going on and this is how i feel about it i think that really helps the the songs aren't so much about the lyrics i feel like as it is the emotion behind what's being played like you pour your heart and soul into the music and then you just give some words for some you know the words are like the sprinkles on top yes that's that's a very good way to look at it and i even put in my notes that you can tell he's really intended to make this as a musician first and a singer second because just listen to all the space that he gives the instruments that he gives himself to play the guitar he doesn't try and rush the words he doesn't try and cram too many words in there it just flows really really well the next song is empty arms and this one i think had way more of a rock and roll vibe to it right a lot more energy a lot more this was like closer to like an elvis blue yes you know like elvis would do some blue stuff that he had that elvis flair on like this reminds me more of that absolutely yeah especially just the right from the way it starts out it feels like like rock around the clock or something, you know? Do, 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 do. Can you do that again for me? No. I don't know. This is a song that I think you'd just be better served to listen to because there are. St- I'm in awe. I'm in awe of some of the guitar riffs that he puts into this song, especially the solo really late on in the song. It's only three and a half minutes, but it's an uproarious three and a half minutes. Yeah, I guess blues songs have these like tone to them that like makes them distinct like ignoring all the formatting of the words and then just like their style the the sound of the song as a whole its overall tone is distinct yes and so when you take that tone and you play something that's more akin to a rock song in that tone you get something like this and i really like that i think it's a good mesh like no other two styles I think compliment one another as well as a rock and roll blue song does. Wow, snub the country western, but okay. Country westerns are just country music, right? I mean, <laughs> it's true. You're right. Like this is like taking rock. This is like taking a rock song and a blues song and putting them together, and you come out with this. Yeah, it's the mint chocolate chip genre. Yeah, but less controversial. Right. It's the Reese's cup genre. That's great. Yes, because only people who are allergic to it don't like it. Hey, if you're out there and you're allergic to the blues, don't listen to this episode. <laughs> Have your EpiPen ready just in case. I like this song. I like the groove it gets into, but I don't like it as much as the next song. Track four is Little Wing. And if you're not familiar with Little Wing... It's probably the most popular one on the album. Oh, it easily is. Little Wing is a cover of a Jimi Hendrix classic. One of uh, Jimi's biggest songs and also one of the bigger songs that Stevie Ray Vaughan cut. I'm incredibly familiar with, like both versions and i think this is a remarkably faithful adaptation i think it's also you can very much tell that he's trying to emulate 
Jimi Hendrix and channel a lot of that energy, but it's also a totally unique twist on it, just in terms of the sounds that he gets out of the guitar. This is a particular example where he takes a cover and does it justice while making it irrefutably his own, and that's really neat. It's an instrumental track, there's no words. Which, you know, uh, you gotta love a good instrumental track. Yep, <laughs> yep, it's... Six minutes and 47 seconds long. So long. More than three times longer than some of the shorter tracks. It did go on a little long. Yeah, but so does the Hendrix one. Uh, Yeah. It's kind of the juggernaut of the album. It feels like the centerpiece. It's like that last 47 seconds, right? Like they stretched it 47 seconds too long. Wow. Keep it under six minutes. I don't know. I just found my, I found my ability. I wanted, I wasn't like losing interest in the song, but my ability to be interested was waning, right? You can only hold the attention of your audience for so long at a time you know the amount of energy it takes to stay focused on something and so six minutes and 47 seconds is a long time to ask somebody to especially when there's no words to listen to to just sit there and focus on your guitar playing actively focus yeah it's it's tough yeah it's hard so it's a little long from that standpoint but to just put on you know play it on the radio jam out to it as you're driving along or whatever it's it's perfectly fine in terms of its length yeah i like little wing a lot i think i would take little wing put on the playlist oh wow calling it that early i might yeah i might call it that early if it's not little wing it might be the sky is crying itself interesting or mtr i don't know now that you mention it everything's got a pretty pretty equal case for being on the playlist i guess we'll see where you end up and then go from there but the next song the halfway point of the album is wham wham is just a raucous really gritty blues jam it's another one that has a lot of 12 bar blues sections but there's always a cool way to twist it you know this song does mix it up a little more it does deviate a couple places i just think it's cool that you barely even realize it's the same chord progression in each of these songs because of how well he's able to dress it up every time it's like all the different kinds of chocolate ice cream we can't go back to ice cream after you said ice cream was a bad analogy did i say ice cream was a bad analogy when did i do that well i said the mint chocolate chip thing and then we had to switch it to the reese's cup oh uh, well that was no that was just because mint chocolate chip ice cream specifically is controversial right there's a lot of people who don't like mint yeah that's true but in terms of chocolate you know you got your chocolate you got your double chocolates your double chocolate fudge your chocolate fudge uh you know there's just all these different versions for the same thing of just how much chocolate flavor can we cram into a scoop of ice cream yeah and i, I guess he was just trying to see how much 12 bar blue flavor he could cram into one album <laughs> yeah it, it is a lot but i don't think it gets old it stays fresh i just wham wham is a f- gritty little song i said it before but i'll say it again it's it's really down and dirty say it again it's gritty I like it. One more time. Gritty. Gritty! (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I like about this song is there's a really, really big rise in the middle, which I think is very cool, very well executed. But that's Wham. The next song is very polite. May I have a talk with you? Proper English, too. The Sky is Crying is also proper English. Didn't bother to point that one out, did you? Well, no, it's just a lot, you know, the joke about it would be like, can instead of may. I don't know, can you? Yeah. This one starts off really discordant for as polite as it is. (laughs) It starts off with that really dissonant sound, and that's really, really cool to me. And I think it's got a lot of further moments of just absolute dissonance throughout. And I think it's a special talent to be able to do that in a good way, to recognize, you know, the theory behind how that all goes together and to make your sevenths and your diminished and your augmented chords sound like they actually fit into the structure of your song 
and they're not just noise. Like this is a guy who knows his theory, who knows his scales, and he really, really puts them to work to the fullest extent. And I think that's the most evident on May I Have a Talk With You. If I had to pick one song to chop, it'd probably be this one. Interesting. Understandable. Yeah, I have no I have no uh, pushback against that sentiment. A lot of these songs are pretty interchangeable in terms of how much I like them. Yeah, well, that's because a lot of them are similar in a lot of ways yeah that's with the exception of a couple of the ones that are in my top three and then probably this one because this one would probably have the easiest time chopping especially like these songs are like they're they're distinct in their own ways but especially on the ways that you rank for like listenability and for enjoyment level and for how engaged you are i think they all are about at the same level for those things Mm -hmm. and it's also a long song but not as good as little wing yeah that's true it's five minutes and 48 seconds clocking in a minute shorter than little wing but still more than a minute longer than the next longest song there's a really steep jump between most of the songs and then these longest two the next song i really like a lot track seven is close to you this feels like a really like staple blues track to me if someone's like hey i've never listened to the blues where should i start close to you feels like an easily digestible way to get into the genre like a good entry point right it's a it's a cover of a willie dixon song i want to i want to criticize his lyrical choices here for a little buffoonery we haven't had some certified buffoonery in a while We've had moments of certified buffoonery, but we haven't called them out as such. It's just some of his analogies he chooses in his verses here. They range from good to, well, okay, duh, to uh, does that even make sense? <laughs> yeah, you're right. I want to I wanna be close to you, baby, as white is to rice. Is he just completely ignoring brown rice? Like, does that just not exist? I know. Well, that's an expression. That's that's like an existing. Is it? I've never heard it. Well, you've never heard it. it must not exist. Yeah, it must not exist. As close to ice, okay, sure, whatever. As fire is to smoke, like isn't the whole thing that smoke rises and like gets away from the fire? Like smoke actively is leaving the fire. It's not close to it. <laughs> You're right, but where there's fire, there's or where there's smoke, there's fire. That's the whole thing. The one that really gets me. As a pig is to pork. Like, okay, duh. <laughs> like, pork is is a pig. It's what it is. Like, <laughs> like that's the one that really gets me. Like, that's that's the certified buffoonery moment for me is as a pig is to pork. Well, the pig is closer to pork than you are, so. Uh, I guess, yeah, you got me there, Stevie Ray. <laughs> there you go. Boom. Boom. Sweep the leg on that argument. Moving on. <laughs> I, I do like, I, the lyrics are just light, like fun, lighthearted. This one isn't a sad blues song, necessarily. It's a happier thing. Like, I just want to be close to you. I want to hang out with you. I want to I wanna smoke pigs with you, apparently. <laughs> the next song uh, is another little bit of deviation from your standard blues. Uh, Cheatlings con carne. It's a little more of a Latin groove. Yeah. And uh, I think that's super unique. This is another cover, but I think it's still very good. It's it's also... It's fun. It's another instrumental. It is. And in addition to more of a Latin side, it also has a lot more like jazz roots to it. So it complexifies the blues in that way. Which I'm excited for when we do a full jazz one, you know, that's like full like instrumental jazz. I have one or two on the list. Like we, yeah, it's like we had like Stevie Wonder that like you know gets into the techno jazz, right? Sure, the funk, yeah, which has jazz roots. Yeah, exactly. But I want to. I can't wait till we do like full on jazz. Well, I, it's coming. It's on the list. I think this song is way more subtle and understated than some of the other tracks, and I think for that reason, it may seem easy to overlook 
But what I really think happens is if you actually give it the time of day, I think it shows off how he doesn't have to play loud or anything to show off his skill. He can still get just as much emotion out of a guitar when it's not blaring it. You know, the volume cranked to 11. It really feels like this excellent demonstration of his dynamic proficiency because he can play just as quiet and he knows how to make everything rise and fall and swell appropriately. I think it's a great showcase for that side of his technical ability. Uh, that brings us to So Excited. Ah, oh, I'm so excited, and I just can't nope, fight it. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. That's no. different. That's different. <laughs> Very different. It shoots us right back up, but not all the way to a 10 like we have been. So Excited feels more like a 6 or 7 to me on the energy scale, which is kind of ironic because you'd think you'd be more excited. So Excited is a unique track because it has words, but it doesn't really have words because uh, the song on the album is an instrumental, but apparently there was one time that Stevie sang the lyrics, one time, in like 1985. It didn't get recorded. They didn't make any kind of a cut of it. So the lyrics exist, but they aren't actually a part of the song. So what we got is the instrumental, and I think that's a really... That that makes it a very unique track. Fair enough. The last song on the album is... What? Oh. I was going to transition us. Whoops. Sorry. You could do it. Step all over my toes. <laughs> me. <laughs> you can do it. Go. So that brings us to our closing track, Life by the Drop. Good work. Yeah. Life by the Drop is this nice acoustic track that, that closes us out. If I'm not mistaken, uh, and I don't think I am, he's rocking a 12-string guitar on this one, oh. which is pretty uncommon for Stevie, and I think it's a cool inclusion on this album because, again... It's just, it solidifies in my mind that this record, like, while posthumous, is a total, as close to a total scope of his ability and career as we can get in 10 tracks. This is, this is for some reason, I don't know if there's another version, because this isn't original to him either, is it? Well, uh, no, it's not original to him. It was written by his friend, Doyle Bramhall. I don't know. I just I feel like I've heard this song before. It seemed familiar to me. Maybe. Which of all of the Stevie Ray Vaughan songs to know felt weird that this would be the one I'd know. And and what's interesting about it is Stevie's friend wrote it, but the lyrics are about Stevie. So he recorded this cover. Cover. I mean, it's the first recording, even though he didn't write it. And he's basically singing about himself through the eyes of someone else. And I think that's really interesting. Not as weird as. Calling his own eyes baby blues, though. No, not as weird as that. Sorry, Randy Travis. Even though this is a blues album. Yeah, but he's an adult. He's got adult blues. If Randy Travis had referred to his eyes as adult blues, would that have made it better? Would have made it worse. (laughs) Think about this. Life by the Drop's not only the conclusion to this album, it's the conclusion of, like, new music that would be released by Stevie Ray Vaughan. This is the last Stevie Ray Vaughan song to exist. His last drop of life. (laughs) Good night. <laughs> right. I don't it's pretty dark. And I think because of that, it's actually one of the most popular songs off this record. It's got nearly twenty-eight million listens just on Spotify alone. And I, I love the way that he sings it. It's so emotional. It's so powerful. And it just sounds good. It's such a nice way to send off this record that's been so bluesy and you know, big guitar sounds and stuff. It's just him. It's a twelve string guitar and he's singing about himself. And he does it well. Just like we're gonna do the final spin really well because yes. we're professionals. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well you'd think, you know, thirty-six episodes in we might be a little closer. And one would one would hope. And one would be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> hey one, are you disappointed? My take, 
on this album. I think this is a great album if you're looking for blues, if you're looking for guitar playing excellence, or if you're just looking for a great record that can be both an active and a passive listen. I think you're going to get out of this album what you put into it. So maybe what you want from it varies from play to play, right? It kind of offers up as much or as little as you're willing to take. And since it's career spanning, I think it's a great introduction and a great overview of Stevie Ray Vaughan as an artist because we got all of these different influences, all these different styles, all this different, so many different demonstrations of his talent and technical skill over the last five years of his life. It's all summed up right on this one record and I think that's really awesome. I don't know and it's interesting because like while we've had great musicians on the podcast before I think a lot of great musicians that we've talked about are duly recognized for their songwriting for their singing you know for other things and Stevie is a case where yeah he can write a song and he can sing but he's like really a guitarist first and foremost and we haven't talked about too many people like that yet who are primarily instrumentalists. So I guess that gets us down to scores. I, I feel like I've said a lot of what I need to say already about this album. It says what the numbers then. Yeah, we'll hit you with the numbers real quick. Music, I'm giving a 77. Okay. Uh, with an asterisk. I'll clarify in a minute. Lyrics, I'm giving an 84, which is as close as pig is to pork. Instruments and production, I'm giving a 94. And then overall vibe is getting an 87, which just a side note for that one too. I think the overall vibe is really, really impressive given that it was put together by his brother. I think it's really well constructed, even though it was put together by a third party. Uh, but my asterisk for music is that my music score is mostly about just the super abundance of 12-bar blues. I, I considered all of his solos and improvisations like they're top-notch, but mostly those factored exclusively into instrumentation because that's literally what he's all about. You know, the way he plays his instrument, the feeling that's behind it. The music itself, the melodies are pretty standard blues. The 12-bar blues chord progressions are, like, normal. They're abundant in the genre. And there's nothing, like, particularly special about these 12-bar blues or this vocal melody versus the other. What really sets this album apart is his guitar playing, his solos, and his instrumentation. So that's why instrumentation is jacked way up in the mid-90s, and music is maybe a little on the lower side, even though he's a great musician. I'm watching a squirrel fall asleep on a tree branch outside my window. Is it supposed to be, is it supposed to be uh, computing math scores for us right now? Because so it's... Yeah, he's sleeping, on, he's sleeping on the job. Anyway, what's your total score? My overall score for this album is an 82.8. But that puts it at number 272 overall. I like it. I think it's an entertaining album. And like I said, you get out of it what you put into it. It's good for a myriad of situations, whether you want to deep listen and dig in for substance musically, uh, or whether you just want to have something on in the background to just have rocking out while you're doing other things. I think it, it spans that gap. And uh, I'll have to point out as well, it's uh, somewhere around 30 spots lower than Cheap Thrills by Big Brother and the Holding Company and Janis Joplin. So that one was the better record for me. I'm curious to see which one's better for you. Well, considering Joplin's my lowest score ever. <laughs> well, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I mean, it's got a very low bar to beat is all I'm saying. <laughs> it doesn't have to do much to, to beat it. And I'll, spoiler alert, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, oh, it doesn't have to do much, but boy, does it ever. <laughs> <laughs> it does just that. It does much. Uh, let's just quickly name drop my top threes, and then I'll kind of give a quick little brief summary. Mm, we got In Album Order, Empty Arms, Good Little choice. Wing. Good choice. Carnival Mention going to Chitlin's Concarne. Good choice. And Life by the Drop. Good choice. I knew that Empty Arms and Little Wing had to be top three, but you could make a case for any of the other songs to take 
the spot over life by the drop, I think. Um, that's just kind of how it fell. I gave Carnival mentioned the chitlins over anything else just because of those kind of, like you said, Latin vibes that it snuck in there that I really liked. And like you said, it kind of goes under the radar. It does. If you're not careful. But overall, it was a very homogenous album in terms of my feelings on it. That's a great word for it. It's a homogenous album in terms of... So I break out those college-level words every once in a while, all right? Yeah. I got the degree to prove it. <laughs> every once in a while, I take a break from gluing my pants to say words <laughs> like homogenous. Uh, as for a score, I don't know where I want to put it. All right, thanks for listening to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, walk me through your thought process at the moment. Where is it close? Well, it's I, I like it a lot, but I don't know about its re-listenability. They said the songs are so homogenous and so similar sounding. Just had to throw that word out there a second time. Really? Get, get as much mileage out of it as you can. The majority of them would be way more... Like I would never put this album on with the intent to actively listen to the whole thing. This would be another one of those song uh, albums that I put on that I wanted to listen to, but more as background music. Right. Like I like it better than some albums, but I'd listen to other albums, I think, more often than this one, given the choice. Mm-hmm. And so I think I'm going to... Give it. I'm eyeing my spreadsheet, and I see a spot that looks appealing to me, so I'm going to pull the trigger. This one's going to get six super glued buttons out of ten for me. Six out of ten. All right. Uh, And if I might ask, where in your sixes does that fall? Uh, Right below me and my gang. That's where I thought you'd put it. And right above Apoptosis. That's a respectable score. I thought about putting it above me and my gang, because again, I like it better than me and my gang, and I think I like it better than Permanent Vacation. It's almost too, it's almost too homogenous for its own good. I got it, I got it in there three times, you know? Yeah. Yeah, six uh, super glued buttons. Okay. That'll that'll hold up six super glued pants. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> if our theory is correct. If our theory is correct with a strong enough glue. Yeah, I guess that settles that. You're not anti blues. Aerosmith, by the way, also very blues rocky. So interesting that it scored so close together. I think you're definitely way more into the rock side of the blues than the acid rock side of the blues. As for my pick for the podcast, I think I'm going Empty Arms. Okay. Okay. Um, especially if you're going little, especially if you're going Little Wing. It's a it's a double whammy. Ironically, wham is not part of the double whammy. <laughs> but Empty Arms and Little Wing, is they're like monster tracks. They're so good. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Spin It. We're happy to have you here. Uh, and we'll see you next week with an episode that has been a long time coming. It's been teased and teased and teased again. Sometimes as far back as like, what, 16, 17 episodes ago? So the day is finally arriving. And, uh... That's all I'll say wait, about it. Wait, you, no. Are we finally doing? Hold on. Yeah, finally. We're finally doing it. Don't tell the mixtaper. Oh man, I was not let down. It's gonna be a let up. Okay. It's gonna it's gonna exceed your high expectations. I hope. I hope so. I hope you're not overselling it. Uh, keep spinning. Keep spinning. I didn't do the thing. Dang it. Follow us on social media at SpinitPod official on Instagram and at SpinitPod on Twitter. www.spinitpod.com is our website where you'll find all the information, all the other stuff about Spin It. We'll see you next week. Stevie Ray Vaughan is like pork close. <laughs>